Welcome to Alessia's Divine Comedy, a journey through Dante's masterpiece, a read-along podcast hosted by me, Alessia Cesana Harris. This is episode 40, Purgatorio, Canto Sesto, the third day, early afternoon. We are still with the souls of the violently dead. Dante opens the canto with an image to depict the chaos of the situation, that of winning a game of Zara, and it pretty much sets Virgil to be the loser in this scenario. This is a view that took some time to emerge among commentators, with Hollander attributing it to the rosy view of Virgil among earlier ones. Maria Picchio Simonelli, however, provides the most interesting interpretation in my view. While it's true that Virgil was likely left out in practice in the situation, the real loser is Florence. It is likely that he meant Virgil's though, but I don't know if I agree that there was anything behind it other than how luck played out in both scenarios, since the dice game referred to is similar to some modern gambling games. I don't think it makes the view of earlier commentators too positive about Virgil's role in the poem. It is true that in Purgatory he becomes more of a companion than a guide because he has no idea what is going either. But it's significant to me that Dante has not created a situation in which, say, Cato or someone else took over once he reached the beach. And I don't think it was because he wanted to humiliate the soul of the man he saw as a master. More likely, in my humble opinion, that the admiration for the poet was one of the attachments that Dante needs to leave behind on his quest for heaven. We get a brief overview of six small people who have died, and then Dante will address Virgil on a matter of his beliefs. I'm undecided whether to stick to the chronological order and look at the people, or stick to the theme of Dante versus Virgil and look at their debate first. I guess it makes more sense to jump ahead and look in more details at the changes in the dynamics between the two travellers, and then I'll go back to the characters. Dante's question is a reference to what the Sibyl said in the Aeneid about the vain hope that the decrees of the gods may be turned aside by prayer. Virgil's response is quite telling, in my opinion, about the alleged rosy view of Virgil that Hollander was criticising in the earlier commentators. I don't see how he can see it as anything other than Dante the poet trying to square the circle and defend Virgil for his error, which is anyway understandable because he didn't have the revelation of the one true God, so his words can only be final with regard to the pagan gods. But I guess Dante needed to go through the process of realising he was looking for answers in the wrong places, in a way, and so the scene is constructed around the need of Dante the pilgrim, even if it doesn't end with Virgil saying it was wrong. The honest of the error in this passage is put on the interpretation of the poem, rather than the words they used. Dante appears to be trying to excuse the master and justify his love of the poem, without, uh, despite its antithesis to Christianity, and the fact he couldn't even contrive to put Virgil among those harrowed from hell like Cato was. The excuse is so flimsy that Virgil will have to take recourse to Beatrice's authority and to the dis- so that the dispute ends when Dante is eager to move on, saying he isn't as tired as he used to be. But before we move on with them, I promise we'd have a look at the folks mentioned and why they're there. L'Aretino, who was killed by the ferocious arms of Gino di Tacco, can only be identified as Benincasa della Terina, who was known as L'Aretino at the time. 
He had a number of political roles, as you'd expect, and in one of them he fell on the bad side of Gino di Tacco. The situation was that he had been the judge over a family of thieves who had stolen a castle in the Sienese territories as the base for their crimes. An imprecise number of them was executed as a result of the arrest and trial, and Gino, who may have been one of them and managed to escape, it's not really clear, disguised himself and followed the judge on his way to Rome, where he was called to adjudicate over another case, and killed him. Allegedly, he left the crime scene with Benincasa's head as a trophy. Then we have the other man, who Dante simply calls the other, and says he died drowning while running in a hunt. It's unclear if he was the one after someone or been run after. He is thought to be Guccio de Tarlati by earlier commentators, but we have no biographical data to confirm why they thought so. Patching up the story here is one of those cases that shows you how historians are basically Sherlock Holmes, but one of the possible helps in reconstructing the full picture is the situation in the verses that follow. We have a mention of a name, Federico Novello, but not of a death. It is possible that the silence is, as always, due to the story being notorious, but what story it is may be the interpretative key for the death of his companion. Federigo was a son of the family of the Conti Guidi, and that the curriculum vitae that you'd come to expect from this family that comes up over and over again in the poem. The most likely circumstance of his death was at the hand of one of the Guelphs of the Bostoli family in Arezzo in 1289. An anonymous source links the circumstances of his death to helping the Tarlatis, who were enemies of the Bostolis until their pacification in 1311. The years 1289 and 1290 in particular were full of raidings around the area, and we know that there is no record of Tarlati dying in battle as some have suggested, so it is possible that it was a victim of one of these raids, which would be consistent with the idea of drowning while running after or running away from, whichever Dante meant with his words. Il Pisano is a disputed one, either Gano or Farinata degli Scornigiani, Excuse me. And the reference to his father being the good Marzucco is no help, since they were brothers. And the fact there is no consensus whom he meant is no help by their death either. Both deaths qualify. The boss died at the hand of a political rival in the disputes over the control of Pisa. It just happens that Gano had the most illustrious killer of the two, as the order came from the Count Ugolino della Gerardesca. This might be a hint that he was the brother that Dante meant, as of course he would have made the story most, more notorious beyond the city boundaries. And then we see Il Conte Orso, that is Count Orso degli Alberti, the son of someone who we are supposed to have met in the Caina, but I'm undercaffeinated so I don't remember him. It seems from the Encyclopedia Dantesca that Orso fell victim to the same family feud one generation later, and I thought my family was dysfunctional, then, we have a soul split from his body because of hate and envy and not something he committed. And that's Pierre de la Brosse, named by Dante in an Italianized version of his name, who was a French chamberlain and surgeon at the court of Louis IX and Philip III. He fell out of favour and the king had him executed in 1278. Dante uses him as a cautionary tale for Maria di Brabante, from which we can infer that he believed the Queen Consort of France had a hand in the downfall of the Chamberlain, among other sins that she'd better repent. She died in 1321, 
after spending the final years of her life since the death of her husband in 1285, leading a quiet life and dedicating herself to religious works. So that's an interesting comment that Dante makes. According to the Encyclopedia Dantesca, it was letters from her to the King of Spain, falsifying the Chamberlain signature, that led to this downfall, and she came this way in revenge for something that we have no certain idea what it was. She may have put up other people to creating the letters, but it is widely accepted that either way, Dante believed she was behind the whole thing one way or another. We left Dante and Virgil ready to keep going, with Dante full of energy for the first time in forever. And Virgil will be the one slowing him down for once. He thinks he's been too optimistic about a father can reasonably go that day, and tells him that the sun will rise again before they get to the summit. Still, he directs Dante's sight towards a soul who was all alone and looking at them. If you think that when I read this I started making an impression of Luke Kirby as Lenny Bruce, you'd be correct, but I have enough sense not to repeat the singing in the recording. It's a soul for Lombardy, and Dante describes him or her as lofty and disdainful, and grand and slow in moving their eyes. This it's a bit too close to home, although for obvious reasons it can't be talking about neither me or my aunt. In fact, it'll turn out to be from Mantua, like Virgil, so it's not even one of my ancestors. Sordello was a famous troubadour who, despite the Italian birth, wrote in Provençal giving me a precedent of potentially becoming a famous writer who, despite Italian birth, writes exclusively in English. Bizarrely, some commentators said that this passage paints him as a type for patriotic pride. Cue the gif of the mind monkey. Still, it gives Dante the pretext to have a go at his contemporaries. It's a great passage, not just because I often feel this way about Italy myself, but because the poetry is stunning and I would 100% use it in a monologue if I was ever going back on the stage. You might remember the sixth canto of every cantica is dedicated to the politics of the time, but I personally find the whole thing a bit disjointed if I'm honest. I guess the implication was that Dante started to think about where he is from because Sordello asked them that question, even though Virgil will be the one to answer it first. And while he, may, he was busy being friendly with his fellow Mantuan, Dante was left to decide, brewing resentment. Still, even if he does have a link within the text, it just feels to me like an interlude put there to push Dante's agenda, and is likely, uh, and is lucky, sorry, that he was one of the best writers to ever walk the earth, because if someone less talented did the same thing, most of us would have just jumped to the next canto to keep the action going. A key part of this invective against Italy for me is the verses 118-123. Jove is not a reference to the actual pagan god, but a typology for Christ, and so the bit about wisdom that can't make, se make sense in the light of scripture. There are a number of references to subscriptions in the words he uses in this invective, like the Book of Lamentation, the episode in the Gospel about rendering unto Caesar the things of Caesar, and the prophecy of the destruction of the Temple in Jerusalem. At the very end of the canto, he will also quote, almost word from word, from St. Augustine's Confessions. It's all very moving, because it is an attempt by someone really hurt to hold on to hope that the suffering will turn into joy, while the passage is also full of sarcasm to give us an idea of just how hard it is 
to see any positive future for the land. I'm sad to say the feelings were justified. If envy providence has a plan for Italy to be restored to its former glory, it still hasn't happened, and it looks like as far as a prospect as it was back then. I'd like to think that Dante made it to heaven by now, and he is busy interceding for his homeland, which so badly needs it. Alas, as far as the poem goes, it still has a long way to go. So we'll be back with the next canto tomorrow. Ciao! Thank you for listening to today's episode of Alessia's Divine Comedy, A Journey Through Dante's Masterpiece. Thank you also to Alexander Nakarada for the music, which is fun for ten or adds if it was not meant as a Roman numeral, and is available in the public domain. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Alessia underscore Sheik or on my blog www.sheikandcatholic.com.